0: You know, we went through that whole Oscar's so white. Well, if black and brown kids were being taught to write movies, then black and brown stories would be on the screen. So if you want to fix that issue, get these kids writing. Get them to understand what they can do and get them into these studios. Get them at Harvard writing for The Lampoon so that they can then go on Saturday Night Live be writers on SNL you know?
1: Hi everybody welcome to the show this is Blissfully Aware a podcast about rooting into purpose and really figuring out ways to create a positive impact through creative strategy and design thinking. I'm your host Iwana Friedman on today's episode we're going to discuss empathy and diversity with Rahima Rice Rahima is an award-winning playwright from DC and she founded the 4208 group to cultivate the development of writers. So together we're going to start unpack these themes and see where and how we can foster deeper empathy and diversity in culture and start to shift cultural norms in that way. Her point of view is extraordinary. Okay, let's go. Rahima, I'm so happy that you're here. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you too. For the people who are meeting you for the first time, let's introduce them to your experience as a creative and then we'll go from there.
0: Cool. I call myself a writer first because I've been doing that the longest. I really figured out who I was through writing. Um, I used to journal a lot when I was a kid. And well, I stumbled upon the fact that people wrote films. And maybe around 12, 13, it dawned on me that all these movies that I was watching were written by people. So I started doing a little digging and figuring out, who does this? Why, how is that a thing? Like, can I do it? And me and my dad used to go to the bookstore every weekend, and they had like an entertainment section that had screenplays. And so, you know, I asked him to buy me some scripts. The first one I got was Shortcuts by (laughs) Robert Altman, because I, of course, was watching movies that I should not have been watching at 13. And I was like, oh, I know this one. And so bought me Shortcuts, My Own Private Idaho, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, and I think Pulp Fiction. Those were the first scripts that I read. Can we just
1: talk about how cool that collection <laughs> is?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little 13 year old girl, <laughs> like sitting around reading these scripts. Yeah. My thing is, I wanted to see how they were written, I wanted to understand the format. And so I would you know, watch the movies and read along and see this is where they put the action and this is how they separate the scenes. And so then I started trying to do it myself. And I still have those little pages of like the horrible little scripts (laughs) that I used to write. It was me trying. When did it crystallize for you that
1: writing was going to be a tool?
0: There were a couple moments. I went to school for film and TV production, and we had a writer in residence, Marita Golden. I was in her advanced fiction class, and I had written this short story about, you know, some girl in New York who grew up in the hood and gotten pregnant by her drug-dealing boyfriend and this whole thing, and she, like, ripped this story, (laughs) marked it all up. And she was like, look, you are a privileged girl from Brooklyn with parents who have advanced degrees. You know nothing about this life that you're writing about. What is it that's keeping you from writing about you, you know? And I then took a playwriting class and I wrote, I wrote a one act about a young lady who never knew her dad and finds out that he has been in prison for her whole life and goes to have a conversation with him. And I wrote it like as if it was me talking to this person. The teacher said, stick with this. It has substance. That was the moment that I was like, I can do this.
1: What did it feel like to put yourself in the writing?
0: It felt scary. I had to think long and hard about that. As a Black woman writer, sometimes we're confronted with having to change the world. That's a lot of what I was seeing with my peers stuff about social justice and really hard hitting issues that were so community focused. And I couldn't relate. (laughs) Like, I didn't grow up in any kind of like struggle and strife. You know, I did grow up really privileged, going to New York every year to see Broadway shows and going to the symphony and all this stuff. And yeah, my dad went to Yale and Harvard. And so, I struggled with whether or not my voice was even important. And I write so much about relationship dynamics, but I knew that I had something to say. By this point, I was 24, 25. For over a decade, I had been attempting to share my voice. I knew it was important to do that, and I needed to take the leap and start putting myself out there. And there definitely was some feedback from people who didn't fully relate to the character because of their own circumstances. The whole, like, is someone Black enough? Are they jumping off as a strong Black lead off the page? I don't think it's necessary to write strong Black women all the time. I think that's kind of a hindrance to the quality of the work. If you're going to write a fully developed character... We're not always strong. We're not always together. We're not always telling it like it is. You know, we're not always that person. And it's taken a long time, I think, in TV and in media in general, in plays, in writing, everything, to really start to embrace Black women characters that are multi-layered. With that initial one act, I knew it was necessary for me to write someone who doesn't always have it together and doesn't always have the right things to say. But I have had back and forths with people about likability of characters. There are a lot of people in your real life you don't like. (laughs) Simply not liking what she has to say or feeling like she's a bitch is making you feel something and making you think something and making you react as opposed to her just being bland and likable. What do you think that says about culture? Yeah, I respect every audience. There's something for everyone. But I think sometimes, especially in movies, audiences have been at somewhat of a disadvantage, especially Black audiences, when it comes to the development of characters. A lot of people have just been fed this very, like, cookie-cutter story. This is the way it is. This is how it is. That's a wrap. And that's a wrap, yes. And so there's a huge audience of people who expect that basic story. Anything that delves outside of that is confusing or it's not received well. Like my sister, you know, she likes things wrapped up with a bow. (laughs) You know, she doesn't like weird, open-ended endings, you know, and there's an audience of people like that who, you know, want to see them ride off into the sunset. Or they they want, want a solution. They want a solution. But in real life, there isn't always a solution. Film, theater, books, it's an escape, but it's still a reality. And so people, I feel like, have to open their minds more that it's going to show you another reality, another option. When you
1: started writing, did you see room for these more unpredictable, more nuanced
0: characters
1: to take hold
0: in culture? I did. I was kind of an odd kid and I loved independent film in its raw form, like stuff we were going to see in the 90s. Like what? Let's tell these listeners (laughs) what we went out to see, like the pillow book. Yeah. Or like Living in Oblivion or even the stuff that Gus Van Sant was doing in the beginning. I mean, it was not glossy, even like clerks. Like, (laughs) you know, it was not millions of dollars flushed into it and then calling it independent because it goes to Sundance. You know, it was people really bootstrapping a film and then finding an audience to watch it. That's the kind of stuff that I loved and gravitated to, I felt like we knew how awesome this work was and like maybe the rest of the world was going to get hip to it at some point. But there was a whole separate audience going to the big theaters to see, you know, stuff blow up and the romantic comedy. And there's a place in me that likes that stuff too. You know, like I love those Meg Ryan movies. I love Nora Ephron. I love those movies. There's a place for it, but I don't put it into like an artistic box. Yeah, I definitely used to go watch some really interesting things at movie theaters that no longer exist in DC and really speaks to that audience of people that wants a particular thing. They also... Change the makeup of the city.
1: I don't know how many listeners we have from D.C., (laughs) but let's walk them through a couple because there were some really cool ones.
0: So both of the ones in DuPont are gone. All of the ones in Georgetown are gone.
1: Okay, so, yes. Okay, guys, there was one theater in Georgetown by the water.
0: Yeah, there was one by the water. We used to pay
1: just a couple bucks. Mm -hmm. The foundry, you
0: could pay like a dollar, two dollars. That's gone there was one on Wisconsin next to like a poster shop or
1: something. <laughs> it went with a posters. <laughs> yeah. Like when posters went out of style, the movie house yeah. one kaput.
0: Yeah. I think the only one that's still open because the neighborhood did a lot of like advocating for it is the West End in Foggy Bottom. And then... The company, Landmark, opened up E Street Cinema, and they show all indie and foreign films. It was such a cultural
1: canon Mm -hmm. of the time. So we're totally giving away our age here. (laughs) It's good to paint the picture. It grounds whoever's listening into where your roots are coming from, which Mm -hmm. is this really rich culture of independent film on a regular basis. Yeah. And you're like eating this
0: up. Yep. That was my thing. Go to DuPont, have a smoke, <laughs> read the city paper, go to the movies. The city paper. That's like the village
1: voice for DC. Yeah. A little free paper that tells the real news. <laughs> <laughs> and then what happened? So you took this imprint Mm -hmm. this imprint that you had and fringe culture and poured it into writing
0: take us through how that happened to evolve so for years i was having a hard time trying to like figure out what i was going to do to make money Mm -hmm. and be this artist So I would work office jobs or I was working at restaurants for a long time, like waiting tables and hostessing. And then I got this job being a scheduler for one of the mayors. And when it ended, they didn't have another position for me. And so they were like, you know, we'll give you unemployment for a year. And I started to write what became this play. You'll find this funny about these friends who get stuck in an airport overnight (laughs) during a snowstorm. This is a
1: page out of Rahima and Iwana's childhood. Yes. Let's (laughs) tell a little bit of that story.
0: Yeah, we were going to see Leslie for one of her birthdays and she went to school in No man's land. Wisconsin. (laughs) Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Appleton, Wisconsin. Appleton, Wisconsin. Hi, Leslie. We love you. (laughs) Yeah, me, Juana, Rashad. And going back to Chicago, it was a snowstorm and we couldn't get home. And we're stuck in the airport. And mind you, this was before
1: all the security
0: craziness. Yeah, because we were
1: going outside and taking smoke breaks. Not only that, but Rashad (laughs) jumped over on the other side where the teller was. He was like, I have to see what you see. (laughs) Don't tell me there are no flights available. Show me. Yes, totally. I never listened to more Nirvana (laughs) in my life. Yeah, sleeping in the airport waiting to get home. I think I had beat me out of me on repeat (laughs) (laughs) that night. (laughs) Oh, my God. Okay, so this was your first one-act play.
0: Yeah, called The Airport Piece. In the play, it was four women. Three of them had gone to college together, and one of them was the childhood friend of another, and two of the women were in a relationship that was dying, and so having to be stuck in this waiting room when they can't stand each other at this point. One of the friends has been crushing on the other friends since college. They have a moment and it premiered during Black Pride in 2010. I found this little 50 seat black box theater and Adams Morgan Morgan's like the cheapest place in town. It was like so run down and dirty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it was cheap and you could book it and you had to sweep the floors and all that. And I found four actors and it was really well received. And then it went to the D.C. Black Theater Festival. It won an award. It won best one act drama. I ended up building a really good relationship with the director of that festival who loved the play and was just like, anytime you want to be in this festival, you have an in. So my last play that I put on was a full length feature play in the DC Black Theater Festival. It's a lot cheaper to put on a play than it is to make a movie and a lot less complicated. I knew that I needed to get my voice out there in some way. Theater is kind of a great training ground. I would sit either backstage or in the audience and listen to people, try to pick up on, did they laugh at the places where I intended them to, listen to them gasping. And I would always have a talk back after the shows to hear what people had to say. And sometimes the talkbacks would just be crazy because sometimes people really relate to those characters and they want more and they wanna see what happens next with them or they're pissed off that they did this, this, and this. That was my first time really focusing on the fact that I'm this writer who has something to say. That's related to your life. That's related to my life. Yeah, that was a big thing. It was me pulling on an experience that I had, even though I was embellishing it in places that made it even stronger. And from then on, my best work pulled from some experience in my life, even something that may have happened to someone else, but I knew it so well. I'm like the Taylor Swift of screenwriting and playwriting. (laughs) Would you say that's the sweet spot for you? In my not wanting to wrap stuff up with a bow, I don't like to tell a whole story. There's this professor at my grad school who would talk about when she leans in, when something makes her go like, oh, it's never at the beginning when people meet and it's all la la la. It's when one person storms into the room and is like, I can't believe you fucking said that. That's when you start the play. And I learned and understood that audiences are really receptive to that point in romantic relationships, because I feel like people are always looking for some sort of free therapy. (laughs) And if they can go to the theater or see a movie or something, and they'd be like, wow, we just had that argument. I feel that way too. You know, relationship dynamics, romantic relationships, that's my sweet spot. And that's kind of what I've become known for.
1: I'm imagining there's no hiding here. No hiding.
0: Depending upon the kind of writer that you want to be, you kind of have to be an open book You can't hide from these truths that have happened to you. You have the power of words. You have the power of using your voice. You have to let people know that they're not the only one. You have to tell your stories and not hide behind writing about Paris and roaming around and it being lovely, you know. Is there an
1: aspect of that where you're making peace with whatever the outcome
0: is? Yes, I've definitely written because I felt like I needed to get through it or I needed to make peace with it. I wrote up personal essays about how I got pregnant and how it was really my marriage ending and the necessity of my marriage needing to end for me to be able to get pregnant in the way that I wanted to. And just the pain and the hurt and the struggle of all of that to get to this place where I needed to be. I had grappled for so long with some guilt around my decisions and some fear of whether or not I would still be accepted by certain friends. But I knew that I needed to write it to get to a place of peace where I fully forgave myself.
1: What was the tension that you're working through in terms of acceptance from your community?
0: Yeah, it was called She Can't Get Me Pregnant. And I have been watching this docu-series on Showtime or Stars called Couples Therapy. And one of the couples is a lesbian couple. One woman used to be with men and she desperately wants to have a baby. And at some point she's in therapy and she's crying and she's like, sometimes I go to this place where I just don't understand why I can't roll over and he's there and we just magically get pregnant. She felt like it wasn't fair. And I was like, I know what that's like. I completely know what that's like. For me, having previously been with men before I was in my marriage and having previously been pregnant, knowing that I could do this thing, but I was in a relationship where I couldn't just easily and seamlessly do this thing, it started to become difficult. But I was in this community of women who were All figuring out how to do it, insemination and whatnot. Though I was happy for them and I completely respected how they went about doing it, it didn't feel like my way. I wanted to be a mom so bad, and the universe works (laughs) for you. As I'm going through all of this emotionally, my marriage is falling apart. Maybe a year and some months after my marriage ended, I got pregnant and I was dating a man and I got pregnant wonderfully after i wrote the piece a lot of really supportive comments and it's so interesting that so many women in that community now are either married to men or in relationships with men and have had children with men i don't think the love of women and the community of women ever goes away it's inherently within you but i think sometimes You make a decision for what you feel like your future needs to look like
1: you made some really difficult choices Mm -hmm. to get you to where you are today which is in this beautiful home with a beautiful little girl who loves gymnastics Mm -hmm. she's upstairs we can hear her (laughs) (laughs) pouncing around Mm -hmm. would it be fair to say that you're you have
0: a bias for action I'm a very action-oriented person. I'm very decisive. Like when I was going to grad school, I already had Elavon. She was 2 years old and I found a grad program that was a low residency program that would require me to go to Massachusetts Mm -hmm. for two weeks, twice a year. What single mom with a two-year-old just says, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, and all y'all need to fall in line and help out. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody was on board. The whole little village, my parents, my sister, Elavon's godfather. Okay, this is the thing you're going to do. We're going to sync our schedules and figure it out. Beautiful. Yeah, it was me being really decisive. Like, I need to elevate this writing career. I need people help a community of writers that's going to take me to that next level. Which program is it? Lesley University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's a small liberal arts college near Harvard's campus. I was in the stage and screen genre, and after having my daughter, it's probably like the next best experience of my life. How did it advance your technique? It taught me how to not be so cocky about my writing. I went there kind of like, I've been doing this. I've been in festivals. I got this. And I'd be in classes with people who had read 50-some plays, all the classics and new stuff. And I was like, wow, I'm not there. So that humbled me. All of these people with this extreme expertise from all over the country and we've all come together to be better. And then all of the professors are just so talented working professionals in their field, in their craft. They teach you how to let go of these lines and characters and scenes and stuff that you're so wedded to. Because writers are so sensitive and so like, no, but I wrote this thing and it's great. And they say, chuck it, dig your hand in, rip that thing apart and figure out how to make it better. It completely changed the way that I structure characters, that I develop characters.
1: Walk us a little bit
0: through how you develop characters now. I spend a lot of time thinking about who a person is, who they are at their core, who they are at work, who they are with their girlfriends, who they are walking down the street, who they are when they're crying in bed by themselves, who they are in the shower. I take a lot of time to think about that. How do you visualize that? I try to always see these people in an environment that makes them uncomfortable because I feel like if my characters are completely comfortable, then my audience will be too. And I don't want the audience to be too comfortable because then they're not on their toes. So I have to keep my characters on their toes too. always think about the problem. What is the problem? How is it being solved? Who are the people that are causing this person a problem? What is the thing that is against this person achieving this thing that they're trying to achieve? So many stories are the same because of this path of people trying to achieve this thing. Wizard of Oz and like Star Wars or something, how you have these people trying to get somewhere and there are all these forces in the way as they're trying to go on this journey. Doing a lot of studying and understanding of stories and characters in that way helps me to develop characters now.
1: How do you get to a place where you're like, yes, she would react that way. She would say that because of X, Y, Z.
0: Those are usually the times when I pull on some personal experience Mm -hmm. or I pull on some moment, even that's something that I've seen someone else experience, Mm -hmm. because it is someone's reality. With my latest play right now, that's getting a reading next year at the Signature Theater. I developed the main woman based off of a news story that I heard. During the Freddie Gray riots, there was a black mother who was on camera going down to the riots to get her son. And she's like smacking him up the head and pushing him and hitting him. And there was all this controversy like, oh, should she have been hitting her son? And, you know, why would someone... Go and do that, and it's not okay to hit your child. And other people are like, It is okay. Like, she's trying to save that boy from being in a riot and maybe getting arrested and maybe ruining his life, you know? And so I was focused on who is this woman? What compels you to leave your house to go into a riot where people are throwing things, their police, a violent situation to get your son? I started to think about me being a single mother, not having a relationship with my daughter's father, and that became the conflict in the play. There are these decades long conversations that have not happened between these people who feel like they want to help their son, but they have yet to figure out their stuff because whatever crazy decisions that they made as young people getting pregnant and never talking about it they've gone on lived life and had friction and whatnot this situation this riot this focus on this boy forces them to then have conversations that they haven't wanted to have so that was me pulling on my stuff what would we do what would come out. Every single thing that I've wanted to say, I poured all of that into this play. That's so
1: powerful. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever they say and however they interact with the other characters is a result of this backstory that you have in your head when
0: you put pen to paper. That's almost mystical. (laughs) Yeah. When you say mystical, I used to and I still am like when I'm writing something new, I have to know the characters like they're a friend of mine. Like, do they wear perfume? What's their relationship like with their parents? Do they have two parents? Is one dead? Do they have siblings? What are their siblings' names? What kind of clothes do they like to wear? What's the color of their hair? Is their hair dyed? Like you said, yeah, it's not all going to end up on the page, but it might come out in little ways that really shift the story. Like, there's a moment in this play... The main character wears a bonnet and the father is very well to do and doesn't one step outside with her with this bonnet on her head and you feel the energy between them when he asks her is she gonna wear that out the house? And her reaction fifteen years later you still checking me. But she doesn't have to say that. And so I would put things like that based off of backstory, how both of them feel, his relationship with his mother and who she was as a woman and how he saw women and her thing, where she works, how she grew up, what she always saw. Mm -hmm. And what motivates them. Mm -hmm. What would this character be saying to themselves right now at this moment? I used to piss my teachers off a little bit because... (laughs) I wouldn't always meet my deadlines and my excuse would be that I hadn't heard the characters say anything to me yet. And I've maybe done a whole outline and everything of this happens, this happens. I know what's going to happen, but then I need to hear what they're going to say because novel writing is completely different from playwriting and screenwriting in that in the novel, I could input a lot of that backstory. I could have a whole first chapter where I'm saying such and such was born and blah, 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 blah. And reading a book, you're used to that. You almost need all of that. But a play and you're sitting in the audience, you want to lean in off of what those people say. It's all very tricky. I don't know why I'm a writer. the words need to carry the weight
1: of their history. Mm-hmm. Which in everyday life, like sitting here at this kitchen table with you and chatting, it doesn't feel like the words that are coming out of my mouth are weighted with
0: my history. But you as a writer have to infuse that very wisely. You do, and you have to let the audience know the history, the tension, without having the care to say, well, remember that time... Being able to do that comes with experience. This isn't something that I just woke up knowing how to do. I do think that I have a natural way with dialogue, and I've been told that a lot.
1: I like what you said about appreciating the audience's intelligence mm-hmm. and leaving some things to their interpretation and their imagination. Mm-hmm. So then at the end, it's more like a co creation as opposed to a one way communication mm-hmm. from you,
0: from the stage, onto a group. Yeah. I can't manage what people are going to take away from something. And so I do leave things to the imagination. And sometimes people, you know, are really irritated by that. I had a one act in this festival last November that was about this night at an art gallery. A woman is the curator and her boyfriend is there helping with the opening night of her first show. They're a mixed race couple, she's white, he's black. They've moved to Anacostia, which people who don't know in dc it's you know low income area but it's gentrifying and this new art gallery is opening and they've hired this white woman to curate this show that's going to really speak to the people in the neighborhood Mm -hmm. the first show that she puts up is this mentor of hers this older black man who she's been having an affair with and people just had so many problems with there were some people who loved it but there were people who just uh Had so many problems and issues um, with the play, and 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 I wrote it in verse. (laughs) (laughs) Can you do? You remember some of the verses? Yes. So there's the character Manny. Um, This is at a point where he's just seen the mentor. And his girlfriend is hugging this man. So he says, Yes, that's my woman. And yes, they have a pass. Yes, his old ass is attempting to feel her ass. Penelope questions why I came. And it's for this very reason. I knew this washed up bum would think it's white girl cuffing season. The dimwit on his arm, my girl, and some other chick all clamor around this dude and ignore when he's a dick. <laughs> that's just a little bit of
1: <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. It's a very layered story.
0: It is. How was it received? The play was in a festival at the Anacostia Playhouse. The theme was change, new vision. The play had to take place in Anacostia. Me, I know who I am as a writer. I write about relationships in some crumbling form, and I'm not preachy about things like, gentrification Mm -hmm. and so not wanting to preach and have that word show up in any way I had it show up through this couple Mm -hmm. that here's this early 30s mixed race couple that's come from Shaw Mm -hmm. and moved to Anacostia for her to make it great to put her stamp on this community as if there isn't already a stamp and so without saying all of that I put it in the dynamics of all of this stuff going on. And there were plenty of people who got it and loved that I did it in that way. But there are plenty of people who are very rooted in that community and rooted in art being the fist in the air for the community. Art being, you know, the therapy for the community. I'm not connected to my art in that way. I want people to be entertained and I want discussions to be created. I want people to walk away with something to think about. I don't necessarily write for the purpose of healing. Not saying that someone might not have that takeaway, but I don't necessarily write for that reason. You're staying
1: true to that point of view. Yeah. Because I'm not hearing you saying it's not okay to use art as an overt political tool. Yeah. Because there's so many people like For Freedoms is doing that very, very well. Mm-hmm. And it has its place. It's wonderful that you
0: know you're coming from a different direction. Yeah. In being a student of film and different filmmakers and stuff, you know, I definitely soaked in all of the Spike Lee stuff, but I also soaked in a lot of the Woody Allen stuff. And I felt both of them were doing the same thing, telling these New York stories in different ways. You know, Woody Allen has his Upper East Side issues and Spike Lee had his Brooklyn issues. Issues. What I needed to do is merge that in some way that is not wearing the issues on my sleeve, but figuring out through the dialogue and through the character issues and tension and stuff, how to speak to some of the things that I might want to speak to.
1: What are some of the issues that are important to you?
0: I write from a Black feminist perspective and... I definitely write a lot of stories about DC. More than half of the city is filled with people who are not from here, who don't know so much, like what Columbia Heights used to look like, you know? Some of the soul of the city I think has just been taken away and turned into tanning salons and Starbucks and condos that are exorbitantly expensive. How do you see the DC art scene? There are people who leave for grass is greener, like it's greener in New York or it's greener in L.A. But there are a lot of people who come back because they're like, oh, yeah, it's not really. (laughs) For those of us who stay, do we exhaust the 10, 15 years trying to bang on someone's door for them to hear it? Or do we do it? Find a cheap theater and put on a play. Get some camera equipment, get some friends, go out on the street and shoot a web series. You know what I'm saying? So the art scene here is full of a lot of people who grind it out. They have a hand in doing what they want to do. Very tight knit community. I've heard gripes from people like, oh, you know, it's very clicky. It's not necessarily clicky, it's trying to preserve something because even the arts in the city has become untouchable to the small people and the indie people. I'm going to a talk on Monday for the Kennedy Center Reach. They've reached out and want all these playwrights in the community to come and have this discussion about how they can improve our ability to present because none of us has thousands of dollars to reserve these huge theaters and everything is becoming so inaccessible. So I think that the community is just trying to stay tight. We all kind of know each other or know of each other, can get connected to get things done. Mm -hmm. And I really love that about the arts community here. It's a bias for action. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And what I love
1: about what you just said is that it's not like you're waiting for permission from an external force saying, yeah, you are talented. Yeah. Here's some money. Go produce.
0: A lot of the people that I respect took their time and eventually it caught on. You don't give up on it just because people haven't caught on yet. It's not easy to, like, decide to do all of this. (laughs) (laughs) There's no media payoff. (laughs) No, it's not easy at all. What person in their right mind sits down and thinks, I'm going to create a career where I am at the mercy of other people's likes and dislikes? You know, whether or not someone thinks I'm good will determine the potential of my livelihood. I do all sorts of things to make money, all legal, but <laughs> let's talk about that. I substitute teach. That was a big passion of mine. And a big reason that I went to grad school is that I want to teach this younger generation how to write plays and scripts. You know, I kept hearing people talking about bridging the wage gap between men and women, between minorities and white people and I'm like, there's this whole untapped world that people are not talking about. A TV writer on one episode can make what some people make as their entire salary in a year. So you take 10, 15 of those episodes of one season of a show. That person is making more money than their parents, grandparents, whoever probably made in their entire lives. And no one is teaching these kids or telling these kids that they can write television shows or that they can write these movies that they go see every weekend. And they can then use that money and move back into their communities and bridge the gap. You know, we went through that whole Oscar's so white. Well, if black and brown kids were being taught to write movies then black and brown stories would be on the screen. So if you want to fix that issue, get these kids writing, get them to understand what they can do and get them into these studios, get them at Harvard writing for the Lampoon so that they can then go on Saturday Night Live and be writers on SNL, you know? So, so important I want to teach these kids to write. I want to get kids passionate about something, even if I was doing a workshop and they weren't necessarily interested in writing. Like if they left the workshop, like, Oh, I don't know that I'm a playwright or I don't know that I'm a screenwriter, but I do like that. She was up there teaching workshops. How do I do that? Getting them passionate about something on the front end will keep them from just waiting to retire. I don't want that for my kid, and I don't want that for anybody else's kid. Is there anything we didn't touch on? A lot of what keeps people from doing the thing that they think is crazy is, one, the fear of will it pan out, but the vulnerability of how will I be looked at for doing that thing? How will my spouse feel if I walk into the house tomorrow and say, I'm leaving this six-figure job to open a record store or whatever and not feeling like you have the support, that you have the know-how to really make that thing happen? What helped me during that time when I wrote my first play, I also read this book called What Should I Do With My Life? And it was a bunch of stories of different people who had done the impossible, lawyers who had decided to start a cake business because people had asked themselves that question. They had gotten to a point in their lives where they were like, is this it. (laughs) I just have so many people. I know people who are stuck on that fear of how do I get this thing done? I've been going to a lot of free seminars and free workshops and summits where all of these people who have gotten where you're attempting to go, they sit there and they tell you their whole stories. They tell you, this is how I did it. Mm -hmm. And they give you all the gems. You know, There's so many ways for you to step out of that fear, I have a ton of things that I want to do that I've pushed to the <laughs> to the back burner because fear still exists. And every so often I, I attempt something and once I see that I can pull it off, like this festival I did last year, this 10-minute play festival, I was very scared <laughs> about doing it. It's a smaller version of a bigger dream I needed to do to see if the bigger dream could possibly happen. It's going to keep going until the bigger dream can come to fruition. Building blocks. Yeah. that And way now it's... that I know I can pull it off, I know. Yeah,
1: and it's intimidating in increments. Mm-hmm.
0: You got to think about the long game. Mm-hmm. And what are all the things that you can do so that we're not always categorized as these starving artists.
1: How can people find you?
0: On all of the social media platforms. so People can follow me. I have a Medium page that has all of my personal essays. If they want to know more information about my arts company, the 4208 Group, Google the 4208 Group, and you'll see info there. We're like actually taking submissions right now from playwrights for next year's festival. And how can
1: people submit their work to you? Um,
0: if they go to the 4208 Group's website, on the right smack dab on the homepage, there's something that says 10 Minute Taste 2020, just click on that and it'll take you to the submissions page
1: okay perfect yeah thank you so much for coming on it was a pleasure to talk to you this is great thank you so much for listening blissfully aware is produced by the daring a creative consultancy and transformation partner to purposeful entrepreneurs and organizations our theme music is by ben tyree And you can get in touch by emailing info at thedaring.co. I'd love your feedback, your topic ideas, your guest ideas. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review so that other people in our cohort might find it. And I'll see you back here in two weeks. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs)